Now, the sentry was not unreasonably suspicious of two men attempting to change a light bulb which was self-evidently working. That's a good point. Hello and welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. In this episode, we are looking at Lieutenant Anthony Dean Drummond, who at the time was in the army and actually came from an army family, as we'll see. So his father won a military cross in 1916 when he was part of the Royal Horse Guards and he also won a DSO in 1917. So this chap was actually quite young. He was 24 when this particular action happened, but he'd obviously had quite a good rounding in military service from his father in particular. And then, you know, through his early life, he was educated at, at Marlborough College and before he went to the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich, and then on to staff college in Camberley. So he was obviously being lined up for a future mm. in the military. And he actually joined quite early. He joined the Royal Corps of Signals in January 1937 as a second lieutenant. But in 1940, this is when it gets interesting, he became one of the first men to join the 11th Special Air Service Battalion. Okay. Now, I'm into the RAF. I don't know too much about the Army. So I had a look at this. And the 11th SAS Battalion was formed out of Number 2 Commando in November 1940. So then I had a look back at Number 2 Commando and... Number 2 Commando was formed in June 1940. But then that puts a whole confusion onto this because you've had a look at SAS history as well and it mm-hmm. just doesn't quite add up, does it? No, because the SAS as we know it was founded by David Sterling. Yep. Famously so. In North Africa in July 1941. That's right, which I, is a year after we're looking at this particular SAS. I, I, exactly. However, the name Special Air Service or SAS was given to Sterling's creation because something already existed of that name and they were therefore trying to give the perception to the Germans that it was bigger than it was. Yes. And so we can only conclude at this stage that this is what they were referring to when they gave that name to Sterling's creation. What we do know is that he has been seconded to this 11th SAS battalion Yeah, and he is on an operation with this 11th SAS battalion. That is fact, yes. That is we know fact. That. So on the 10th of February 1941, he was on an operation with this 11th SAS battalion on Operation Colossus. Right. For Operation Colossus, he was second in command of the commando force. Now, Operation Colossus is actually a fairly significant, if not actually important, operation that took place during the war because it was the first ever airborne operation undertaken by the British military. Ah, okay. Now, this is significant not just simply because it was the first ever airborne operation. And of course, it was a combined operation because it involved the RAF, it involved the army. So the British military hierarchy had taken note of the success of the airborne aspect of the German Blitzkrieg during the invasion of the Low Countries in France in May 1940, so the previous year, and had essentially come to the conclusion that they could be doing with something along similar lines. Right. Which led to the various creations that you've already mentioned. Of course, yes, because I think when I found that 2nd Commando had been potentially a parachute-focused battalion, whereas 11th SAS was parachute and glider wing. Yep. So they were evidently looking at both sets of arrivals that could be used. Yeah, absolutely. And so after periods of training, this led to Operation Colossus in February 1941. Right. Now, the target of Operation Colossus was a freshwater aqueduct near Calitri in South Italy. Now, this aqueduct 
supplied water to a large part of the Italian population, as well as a number of major ports in the southern part of Italy. And so it was hoped that by destroying the aqueduct, this would help restrict Italian operations in North Africa. Having created this force, having trained them up over several months actually in Scotland, the force was then flown out to Malta where they were gathering and preparing for the operations. Now this included the studying of photographic reconnaissance photos, which as we all know we love. I love in particular. Absolutely. Yes. The PRU, Photographic Reconnaissance Unit, the PRU had supplied images of two aqueducts that were in the area and it was decided that they were going to attack the larger of the two, assuming they would have the greater impact. Yeah, that would make perfect sense. Absolutely. So they actually were flown from Malta to the target. So on the night of the 10th of February 1941, the force to attack the aqueduct took off from Malta to fly over to the south of Italy. Yeah. Now, the RAF also supplied diversionary bombing raid, which was to go on a little bit further and bomb some airfields further on. Now, as we know from a number of airborne missions, not least D-Day, Market Garden and what have you, it's not as simple as just dropping people in a drop zone and they'll automatically hit the target and be there. Yeah. And so inevitably, especially on the first ever one, there was something of a scattering of the forces. Okay. So not everyone was able to be dropped within the correct area. They were slightly split up. But nonetheless, they were actually quite successful in pulling together a sufficient force with which to complete the mission. Okay. Right. However, they were slightly depleted in terms of explosives, ammunition, etc., because some of the dropping of their supplies had gone awry. Ah, uh, okay. So because the force had been scattered slightly in the drop, not all of the men or the explosives and other equipment had reached the target. Now, the original plan was to blow up all three columns of masonry holding up the aqueduct, but instead they had to focus all of the explosives on a single column of what turned out to be reinforced concrete. Did their intelligence lead them to the fact that it was reinforced concrete, or did they think it was brick? Or no, they didn't find out until they were actually there that it was reinforced concrete, so they had believed that it was masonry up until that point. Right. And then when they arrived on the site, having already lost some of their explosives, they were then to find out that it was reinforced concrete, which meant that they would have needed extra explosives in order to succeed right. in blowing up all three. Okay. So the decision was taken by Major Pritchard, who was in charge of the overall operation, to focus the explosives and place them around the western pier of the aqueduct and its abutment. The idea being that if they could take down one of them, yeah. it would be sufficient to destroy the effect of the aqueduct. Of course. You don't need to take out all three to stop an aqueduct running, you just need to take out one. Yeah. So the decision was taken to focus it on them. And at half past midnight, the explosives were detonated. So this is now the morning of the 11th of February. Yeah. And it's interesting in reading some of the accounts of this operation because they say that obviously there was a deafening boom as the explosives went off. Ears were ringing. They all kind of said as the booming sound of the explosion died away, slowly but surely the sound of pouring water as the waterfall cascading down the destroyed pier told them that they had succeeded. Yeah. Just but they had succeeded. Yes. So almost immediately they withdrew from the locality of the aqueduct, knowing full well that the detonation would attract the attention of the local Italian authorities. So we're not just talking about police, and of course there were a number of different police forces. You've got the Carabinieri, but also local army forces. So the plan to evacuate was to trek cross-country to a rendezvous point at the mouth of the Sile River, which is on the Gulf of Salerno. Okay. So it was a five-day cross-country trek that had been planned. Wow. Where a submarine, HMS Triumph, was due to pick them up. Okay. Five days later. 
So they split up into a number of different groups to try and attract less attention from the locals. However, not long after their withdrawal, the first group were spotted by a local farmer who alerted a nearby Carabinieri unit and they were soon surrounded and pretty quickly surrendered. Oh, okay. The second group were also quickly located by the Italian troops who were, of course, alerted by the explosion and being outnumbered were soon captured after a brief firefight. Now, I understand no one was killed, but there was an exchange of fire. Now, the final group were surrounded by local civilians who demanded to see their papers. They did attempt to bluff their way through, but after a standoff with civilians and more and more troops that start arriving, they took the decision to give themselves up. Because they were in effect in a Mexican standoff. Yeah. In which civilians were civilians and children were involved. Do we know which group so Drummond I, was in? I believe Dean Drummond was in that final group along with Major Pritchard. Understood. And okay. it was Pritchard who took the decision to give themselves up. Yeah. Much to the consternation of some of the group who were only too willing to try and fight their way out. Okay. But Pritchard took the decision not to commit a war crime. So I believe Dean Drummond was in that final group. Okay. So ultimately, all members of the mission were captured and taken prisoner of war. However, even if they had made it to the rendezvous point, HMS Triumph would not have been there to pick them up. Really? Yes, because one of the planes who was conducting the diversionary bombing mission had had engine trouble and had crash-landed near the mouth of the Sealy River, leading to the rendezvous being called off unbeknown to the men on the mission. So they, they could have got there and then sat there waiting, never to and be picked up. And would never have known. Wow. However, they were all rounded up and captured anyway, so it wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. Okay. So we now have Dean Drummond taken as prisoner of war. And almost immediately, when they were rounded up, they were taken to quarters in an aerodrome at Naples, where they stayed for a couple of weeks, actually. And it was here that they were interrogated by the Italians and the Germans. And of course, Dean Drummond says that the only information I gave was my name and rank. So from there, on the 28th of February, so at the end of the month, they were transferred to a camp at Sulmona. Which was not a particularly popular move because for the first two months all the parachutists were kept separate in a very small compound. Now he actually says the size of the compound, which is 30 yards by 3 yards. 30 so yards by 3 yards? Yes, that's the size that's of the tiny. compound. It is minuscule. Now, obviously the for how many of them again? 30. So each one effectively had... Uh, three, three by, by one, one yards. Yeah. Which is just about big enough to lay down. Yeah. Now they weren't sleeping in the compound, but that was the size of compound they had access to. Wow. Now, they did make representations to the American attache, and of course, America's still neutral in February 1941. It is indeed, yeah. And as a result of that representation, they were actually moved to the main officer's compound on the 1st of May. So, Solmona is in the Abruzzo region of Italy in the L'Aquila province, located in the Apennine Mountains, almost due east of Rome, albeit around about 165 kilometres away. So, on the other side of the mountains, right-hand side, about halfway down the leg of Italy, if you like. Yeah, I get you. But that also means that they're a long way from any neutral country, around about 600 kilometres to be precise. So, having been moved to the main officer's compound on the 1st of May, he made his first attempt to get out on the 15th of June. Okay. First attempt? First attempt. All right. So, the plan was to make his escape hidden in the wheelbarrows that take all the rubbish, the garbage, out of the camp. However, the day before he was due to do that, suddenly the Germans started checking these wheelbarrows and there was a huge suspicion that there was a stool pigeon located in this camp. Right. So again, in the following month, in July 1941, he was again involved in an escape attempt in a tunnel. And he says that we we reached the wire and had about another month's worth of work to do when it was discovered. And again, informers were suspected. His final escape attempt from this camp... So escape number three. Escape number three from Sulmona. Okay. He made in December 1941. Now, he made this in conjunction with another escaper, uh, Christopher Lee. 
Not the actor. Not the actor. Not the actor. Lee was spelt L-E-A. Okay. But he had been captured on the same mission. Oh, okay. So he was one part of the party. He was one part of the party, exactly. He and Lee had noticed that around the outer perimeter, there was a ledge where the wires didn't quite match up. There was a wall, and then on top of that was the wire, but there was a ledge where the, the walls didn't come together on a level pegging. Okay. So the wires were at different angles, meaning that there was... A bit more of a gap. A bit more of a gap, exactly. Now, he describes it of, I'd noticed a very small ledge passing across three rows of wire where the ground changed levels. Searchlights shone on it, and the sentry was posted 20 yards away. With the help of a friend, Captain Lee, I decided to make use of this ledge. We made a ladder and decided to leave as Italian electricians. We took the ladder down over the inside walls of the camp to the sergeant's compound from which we were due to start. I mean, this seems amazing that you could make a ladder and then walk through the camp pretending to be somebody else and prop it up against the outside wall. Yes. So he carries on. On the night chosen, we dropped over the inside wall of the camp and carrying the ladder, a spare bulb and a coil of wire, we went straight through a corridor in the building in which the Italian guardroom and canteen were situated. This let us out into the space between the walls and the wire. Now he's actually using the same logic as Neve mm, from Colditz, whereby Neve basically always stated that the reason why so many escapes failed in Colditz is because they were coming from where the prisoners would be yeah. arriving from rather than from where the guards would be arriving from. Therefore, it always stuck out. Yeah. Now they're using the same logic here, which is that if you come from the logical direction that a guard would be coming from, or in this case an Italian electrician, but from the guard room... You must be not a prisoner. Exactly. So carrying on, we marched straight up to the light which shone on the ledge and propping the ladder against the pole unscrewed the bulb. The sentry called out to us and we shouted back in Italian electricians. Now the sentry was not unreasonably suspicious of two men attempting to change a light bulb which was self-evidently working. That's a good point. Nonetheless, they carried on regardless, having told the sentry that they were electricians. We then sidestepped along the ledge. While we were doing this, the sentry became even more suspicious and fired, hitting Captain Lee in the leg. He had to give himself up while I continued on because Lee had taken the shot Dean Drummond's had the time to get out yeah basically he's got down over the other side of the wall and is now out on civilian streets yeah for the next three nights he basically traveled on foot traveling to Pescara along the main road which is about 70 kilometers away so he covered 70 kilometers in about three days it's a decent pace especially if you're only traveling at night yeah having reached Pescara he bought a train ticket to Milan now he had with him German passes badges which were forged in the camp however he does say that they were only guessed at because they had absolutely no idea what the originals looked like so they just made up fake passes which is a ballsy move yeah of course taking the train he was able to travel some distance at a relatively rapid pace and in actual fact Milan is actually about nearly 600 kilometers away so he covered about 580 kilometers by train well I mean we've always said train bicycle walking yes best, best ways of getting furthest distance away you can from the camp exactly so once he arrived in Milan, unfortunately he found that there was no train going on to Como. Now Lake Como's right on the border and you know we're now up into the north of Italy. Hmm. The town of Como is obviously on Lake Como. Well, Lake Como's on the border. So he's trying to reach Como itself so that he's in the vicinity of the border with Switzerland. Yeah. Which of course is his ultimate final destination. So he had to wait in the waiting room overnight. And so the next morning he took the train to Como and decided to get out and lie up for the day in the town itself. He was actually stopped relatively quickly with soldiers asking for his pass. Now he's, he spoke some German but he couldn't speak any Italian. 
Right. And while he did try to bluff his way out, they basically arrested him fairly quickly and took him to the frontier post at Ponte Chiasso and searched him. So actually took him closer to the border. They did, yes. To be searched. And in actual fact, the frontier post where he was held was only about 20 yards away no. from the border, the frontier with Switzerland. Wow. While he was there, he asked them why they'd stopped him. And he said it's because he had dirty shoes and a generally unkempt appearance. Now this is quite interesting because in the Alistair Cram episodes with David Gus, he actually discussed this aspect too whereby the Italian guards were generally considered to be better because they actually noticed the details the finer details better than the German guards. Okay. And this kind of tallies with that. We've also covered and you covered previously in other episodes that you had to be one or the other you had to be either clean shaven very tidy if you're say a businessman something Mm -hmm. like that conducting a business or you could be untidy and unkempt as a peasant with a Mm -hmm. beard or something like that but not in between. It wouldn't add up. Now he's kind of done both here because he has travelled by train so he must have been relatively presentable but clearly his shoes were not up to scratch. Mm. That is what was noticed. Wow. Yeah. Having been captured he wasn't immediately returned to his previous camp but taken to a camp at Montalbo and given 35 days confinement. Now 35 days is actually exceeding the Geneva Convention's limit for solitary confinement. Clearly didn't bother them that much because they gave him 35 days but nonetheless and he was only allowed one hour of exercise each day no books or writing material so it was quite a harsh existence it must have been quite mentally draining being captured so close to the border but to then be subjected to that level of that level of confinement Hmm. must have been a bit of a double whammy and eventually on the 20th of january he was transferred back to solmona from there they were then moved to a camp at san romano there's the camp at san romano was quite interesting because it was actually a converted monastery but they did not convert the monastery completely they actually split it in half. So the other half of the monastery was still a working monastery, complete with monks, the works. Really? Yes, and this actually plays quite a crucial part in this, because they made a further escape attempt while in this camp at San Romano. Right. So in order to gather intelligence on the layout of the monastery in general, one of the prisoners of war insisted that he was a Roman Catholic and demanded access to the monks for confession. Wow. Which meant on a semi-regular basis he was being taken over to the other side of the camp and walking around Clever. the monastery side of the camp in order to receive confession. He would then be returned and during that time he was gathering intelligence on the layout of the other side of the camp, the monastery side of the camp. I like it. From there they worked out that there was basically an unused corridor that connected with a bricked up wall that they had access to on their side of the camp. Mm-hmm. So basically the corridor on their side of the camp just led up to a brick wall but from gaining access to the other side of the camp they realized that the other side of that brick wall was an unused corridor i think i can see where this is going mm. so under the guidance of major pritchard who's still still with the team still heading up this group of prisoners of war they decided to try and cut a hole through this brick wall so they basically spent an entire evening slowly but surely cutting a hole to try and make space to crawl through in order to gain access to the other side unfortunately while they were making the hole a monk passed on the other side now it was raining that night and he decided to use this unused corridor in order to avoid the rainstorm mm-hmm. so by bad luck They were caught by this monk. He immediately raised the alarm and the Italian guards made a huge hue and cry and immediately alerted the escapers to the fact that they'd been caught and therefore they scarpered back to their rooms. Now the Italians did attempt a search but they found nothing but people sleeping or pretending to sleep. And Dean Drummond quite openly admits that if they'd actually kept quiet and surprised them in the middle of the escape they would have caught him red-handed trying to make a hole through a brick wall. Of course. So effectively none of them got punished for that escape. 
just to, not to at escape all. because yeah. they couldn't pin on who it was who was digging. Yeah, exactly. They all got away with it. Nice. So by June 1941, the Italians were planning to move all of the officers to a special campsite in Naples. Upon hearing this, Dean Drummond decided that that wasn't something he really fancied doing and he managed to wangle his way into a military hospital a couple of days before the party were due to leave the, to this new camp. Okay. He doesn't go into detail in his escape report itself as to how he managed that, but he does in his book. Now, as a child, he had a bad case of mastoiditis. Now, I had to look into this because I am not a doctor and therefore had absolutely no idea what mastoiditis was. However, if you feel behind your earlobes, there's a protrusion of your skull and those are your mastoids. Ah. Now, if they swell up, it creates quite a bad swelling, quite a painful swelling behind your ear and in your ear. Okay. And having had that as a child, he essentially went to the camp doctor and said, oh, I've got a bad case of mastoiditis. And he was able to describe the symptoms, having already had it when he was young. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the camp doctor essentially said, well, you'll need to go to a military hospital to have this seen to. So he states in his book, I was in the hospital for nearly a month and had quite an amusing time. The food was excellent compared to with prison fare and the Italian nurses were kindness itself. The specialist came on the second day and said he did not think there was much wrong with my ear. He wasn't wrong. But he understood that life in the prison camp might not be very amusing and told me I could stay as long as I liked. Oh, nice. Yeah, apparently quite a high proportion of the hospital patients had, had little the matter with them, but the doctors encouraged this attitude as it gave them less to do. I see. Yeah, that works. He states, my treatment consisted of two injections of insulin each day and a visit from the specialist once a week. I understand that insulin is used only for diabetes and not deaf ears. Like it. So that is his description of his time in hospital. Now this, of course meant that he was free to plan his escape. Escape number five. Yes, escape number five, exactly. To be fair, having already escaped and got as far as the Swiss frontier, the Italians were keeping a very close eye on them. And he does say that I was kept in a locked room on the fourth floor with a carabinieri permanently outside the door. There was, however, a small ledge about six inches wide which ran around the whole building just below my window. So his plan was basically to shimmy around on this ledge round to the lavatory window. Now he was able to be taken to the lavatory a couple of times a day and he had already left the window on the latch mm. and the door unlocked. Mm -hmm. He then states, early on the morning of the 15th of June, I sidestepped along this ledge round the corner of the building and then through another window. I then went downstairs and out through a window on the ground floor. The guard is outside his room. The guard is outside his He's room in a to corridor. He's gone the bathroom around the, uh, the corner. Yeah. But has then walked down through the rest of the hospital and got out through a window. Yes. So having got out of the hospital, he's now free and easy around Florence. So he went to the train station in Florence and bought a ticket for Milan, once again heading to Milan, and got the Rome-Milan Express at 0600 hours in the morning. So he's left very early in the morning. Yeah. And once again, having got to Milan, he then had to wait the entire day pretty much in the waiting room and bought a ticket that night to head to Varese, which again is up towards the Swiss border. Uh, from Varese, he walked about 10 kilometres towards the frontier, and so he's now back in the frontier region. However, he's now moving very, very slow. He's kind of learnt from his previous experience not to just wander down down the street with down the street. shoes. Yeah, exactly. He's now moving very slowly and he's moving cross country. So he's reached the top of a hill and he suddenly saw what he thought was the frontier with sentry boxes about fifteen yards apart. I mean, fifteen yards is not far if you want no. to try and find a gap. It's only forty-five feet. Yeah, exactly. And in actual fact, he says he had since seen a large-scale map of this area and this was not the frontier. Nonetheless, it made him think twice. He decided to head back to Ponte Castle, which to some extent is risky, but at the same time, he knew the area from having been there previously, and so he felt it was slightly safer ground to be on. Yep. So he then starts walking back towards Varese first and then on towards Como. 
Now, while passing through a village at one o'clock in the morning, he gets stopped and asked for his papers. Now, he had none on him, but he told them that his papers were waiting for him in Como and that he was a shipwrecked German sailor and had lost everything. Now, I don't think he was particularly well-believed and he was basically told that he'd be put inside. However, he kind of came up with a bit of a sob story about having to go on leave tomorrow as his poor mother was waiting for him in Germany. And he was able to produce some German money, which reinforced his story. And so, after quite a bit of hesitation, he was allowed to proceed. I have to say, he was quite lucky to avoid being arrested and recaptured. And so, having had a bit of a scare there, he has hid up the entirety of the next day and continued on to Ponto Chiasse at night. Now, during the next day, he slowly moved up closer to the frontier undercover in order to observe where the sentry boxes were. By this stage, he's actually at the real frontier now. And the sentry boxes are spaced around about 150 to 200 yards apart with 12-foot diamond wire mesh on the far side of the boxes. So they've got the sentry boxes, then the wire, and the frontier. He basically needs to crawl between the boxes and then under the wire mm-hmm. in order to get to Switzerland. Now, he does say that because he was going by night, he could not see any of the guards, but he could hear them talking. And around about 11 o'clock at night on the 19th of June, so four days after he managed to escape from the hospital, mm-hmm. he managed to get up to the wire and over a period of about 20 minutes he had scooped out enough earth underneath the wire in order to allow him to get underneath the wire and crawl under. And so having crawled underneath the wire he now knows he is of course in Switzerland, he's in a neutral country. Mm-hmm. And But nonetheless he's still within firing distance of yes. a lot of centuries. Yes. <laughs> and so he proceeds very slowly even once in Switzerland in order to get himself away from the immediate vicinity of the frontier. So it wasn't until actually the following morning that he actually proceeded down the hill to Chiasso itself, which is the town on the other side of the border in Switzerland. Nice. But having got there, rather than giving themselves up, which is what most do, they basically find the nearest policeman yeah, and yeah. give themselves up. He actually tried to get to Bern without giving himself up, the capital of Switzerland. Right, okay. He did succeed in changing his Italian money and buying a ticket at the station. However, about five minutes later, a Swiss policeman on the platform asked him for his pass. Now, knowing full well he was in Switzerland, he wasn't even bothering to hide who he was and immediately told him who he was. And in that fact, he was just taken to Bern the next day. Yeah, I get it. And having arrived in Bern, he was questioned by the Swiss police, where he quite openly informed them that he was an escaped prisoner of war from Italy. As we've discussed before, simply getting to neutral Switzerland is not sufficient in order to return to the UK. Switzerland is, of course, a landlocked country, so there's no port from which to be picked up. And they basically would need to fly over occupied Europe in order to be picked up by plane. Yeah, too risky. Too risky, exactly. So the standard procedure was to send them back into, first, Vichy France, but that's still risky. And then onward into Spain and then Gibraltar, which is precisely what happens to Dean Drummond here. Okay. So as I said, he was taken to Bern and interrogated by the Swiss police. He says he stayed there one night and on the next day, which is the 21st of June, he went to the British Embassy, where he met a Colonel Cartwright, who was the military attaché there, and he stayed there for a week. So after a week in Bern, he was then sent on to Geneva, staying in a hotel there, where he was provided with a thousand French francs, some clothes, that sort of thing. Oh, useful. Yeah. 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 And on the 8th of June, he was taken by car to a churchyard just outside the town. And here they were effectively shown... There's your way out, man. There's your way out. There's the frontier for France. On you go. And it is quite literally the Florida stream, and they're in France. Right. After crossing the stream, he was picked up by a guide who took him to his flat where he had breakfast. Now, we've 
discuss the evasion lines that travel through occupied Europe, and it is essentially a parcel system whereby you only know your stretch. And you pass the And you pass person. the parcel on, parcel being the escaper, yeah. onto the next person who takes them through their, their route. And that's precisely what happens here. From here, another guy took him onward and eventually reached Marseille. On arrival at Marseille, so we're now on to the 9th of July, he was taken to a cafe there. After waiting for about two hours, another guy took him to a house. From here, he was taken by a girl to a flat near the Old Harbour, and he stayed there for a couple of days without leaving it at all. While there, he was given check passes, which was his cover while in occupied Europe. Okay. And they travelled by train to Bezirs. From there, they made their way on foot for about 10 kilometres, hiding up for a day and a night, and then continued towards the coast, passing near Fleury, which is about halfway between Marseille and Perpignan. Okay. So we're now at the coast of France. So the plan was basically for them to be picked up from a beach by a naval trawler. Oh, right. Which okay. was coming in land, very close to land, and was to pick them up by rowing boat and take them off and take them to Gibraltar by sea. A, a British trawler? A British trawler. Wow. Okay. Now it was HMT Tirana. Now we have actually come across the trawler Tirana before. Really? In Whitney Straits Escape, which is episode three of, of series, series one. one. Wow. Not yes, a- that's right. But not only have we come across the Tirana before, but straight was part of the same group as Dean Drummond. So this is the same pickup that Dean Drummond is on. What a small world. Exactly. Well, there's so many overlaps in the escape world. Mm. And we're seeing a perfect example of this. And so they they arrived on the beach around about midnight and there was torchlight signal flashing in order to coordinate. And it took a bit of time to get the rowing boats on and pick them up and get them back but eventually they got them back onto the trawler they were basically told to stay below decks for as long as they possibly could because they were obviously very close to occupied france there was planes flying overhead and they were essentially covered as a trawler they looked just like a trawler mm-hmm. however it was riddled with guns and cannon and <laughs> machine guns and was actually very heavily armed and in order to camouflage itself every time it went to sea and returned to port in gibraltar it had to repaint itself wow he states in his book that in the couple of months that it had been operating in this part of the Mediterranean, they had had to repaint this boat 14 times That's in, a, in a couple of months in order to be able to disguise and operate in this part of the Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Practicality element that I hadn't actually considered. Yeah, it gets even better because on the way back, they had to pick up a group of poles who were making a similar escape and they then transposed those poles onto their trawler and took all of them back to Gibraltar. So it's a very overcrowded trawler at this stage (laughs) sounds like it he wasn't to stay in Gibraltar for very long. He only stayed there for a couple of days. And he was to arrive back in Gurik on the 30th of July, 1942. So only about five or six weeks after he had made his fifth and successful escape. Exactly, yeah. That's really good going. Yeah, not bad at all. Really good going. Now, traditionally, at this point, we would then go on and say what he did through the rest of the war. Yeah. However, as we both know, his escaping is not yet over. No. So I think we might have to leave this... To be continued. To be continued. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.